0: Harry was alone with his thoughts. There may have been over two hundred children with him in the playground, but he was quite alone. Maybe it would be today, maybe tomorrow. Unless, of course, something went wrong, and something still could go wrong. Harry knew it was wicked even to think of that, let alone hope for it. But he could not help himself. He was hoping for it hard. We need a goalie! Peter Barker was bellowing at him from across the playground. Harry turned away. Peter Barker sat next to him in the choir at St Cuthbert's and swapped turf cigarette cards with him, the ones with the big-headed footballers. Father Murphy's sermons ran on a bit on a Sunday, and the surreptitious exchanges between the folds of the surplices added sinful spice to the dealing. One Tom Finney for one Billy Wright, it was, last Sunday. Come on, Harry! Peter was waving him over. We've got no one else! They were all shouting at him now. He had no choice. The goal he had to defend was twice the width it should have been between the two uprights of the rusting chain-link fence with the wilderness of the bomb site behind him. It was fair enough, though, because the other goal was every bit as wide, stretching as it did between the two drainpipes on the lavatory block wall. They often chose Harry for goalkeeper. He wasn't good for much else. He knew he wouldn't have much to do, so he leaned back against the fence and slipped easily into his thoughts. An evil thought is a sin in itself, Harry. That was what Father Murphy had told him in confession. If that were so, and Harry believed most of what Father Murphy told him, then Harry's heap of sins was piling up fast. He must not allow himself to think about it any more. Instead, he would think of Bournemouth. He could always banish his miseries by thinking his way back to Bournemouth. He'd done it often enough over the last two years, ever since Bill came to live with them. Bournemouth was the last time Harry had been happy. He remembered every hour of it, every minute of it. The war had just finished, and they did what his mother had always promised they would do as soon as it was over. They took the train from London down to Bournemouth to spend a week by the sea. All his life he'd wanted to see where the trains went to that steamed past the church and under the bridge beyond the allotments. And now, gazing out of the window, he'd seen the steeple and the graveyard flash past before they thundered under the bridge and were away. His mother sat beside him in her best brown suit, serene in the noise and the smoke of the carriage, with the soldiers in their great boots and gaiters laughing their way home, the war done with. Your old man in the Air Force, is he? One of them asked, noticing the winged brooch Harry's mother always wore on her brown suit. He was she said, and left it at that. The soldiers quietened, looking at each other and wincing at their own awkwardness, and Harry felt that surge of pride as he always did whenever his father was spoken of. He smiled up at his mother, and she held his hand and squeezed it. There was no grief left, not after four years, only a sense of shared loss that bound them together. Harry hardly remembered his father, but his photo was on the mantelpiece in the sitting room, the medal lying beside it. Fine boy you've got there, said the soldier, taking a bar of chocolate out of his breast pocket. I think so, said Harry's mother, smiling. Do you eat chocolate, son? Ask a silly question, Harry's mother said, and the carriage laughed again and rocked rhythmically as everyone ate chocolate all the way to Bournemouth. To a great leaping cheer, Harry's team scored a goal against the lavatory wall, but it was hotly disputed because the goalkeeper said it had hit the guttering above his head. He held up a piece of the gutter as evidence, and a long wrangle ensued before the goal was finally allowed. Harry smiled and thought of Bournemouth, of No. 22 Seaview Terrace, of Mrs. Coleman, the landlady. "'Call me Auntie Ivy,' she had said, and the little room he had shared with his mother. He remembered the stories his mother had read him in bed, the smell of clean sheets and the sparrows squabbling outside their window. Then there was the day they had built the sandcastle with its ramparts and towers, with its great cuttle-shell walls. Hundreds of them they had collected, so that it should be forever impregnable against the sea. He could see now the great moat they had engineered and the driftwood plank that served as a drawbridge. He had stood on the drawbridge and watched the sea surge up the beach and into the moat under his feet only to be held at bay by the cuttle-shell walls. Then, with the darkness falling and the swifts screaming low over the beach, they had planted a flag in the tower and left the beach behind them, their sandcastle and island now, but still standing. And then came the two black dogs, with wildly whirling tails, cavorting through the shallows. They stopped by the castle to investigate, and decided this was just the place to dig. Perhaps it was the only soft sand they could find. No shrieks, no yells could shift them as they dug in the sand with crazed abandon. Within seconds, the castle was reduced to a formless pile of sand. Perhaps they were after sea rabbits, Harry's mother said, as they walked home happy with laughter. Home was Auntie Ivy's white-painted villa, with the green balconies all around, where the food always filled your plate to the edges, and where there always seemed to be more. Haven't you heard of rationing? Harry's mother asked. Rationing, dear? Never heard of it, laughed Auntie Ivy, and she tapped her nose conspiratorially. We have our ways, she said, and that's all I'm saying. It was Auntie Ivy that made up the picnic baskets they took with them each day to the sea or to the cliffs. Harry's mother preferred to eat lunch away from the sand of the beach, so they walked the cliffs, searching for the right spot they would spread out the red-checked cloth, feast themselves on sausage rolls and digestive biscuits, and look down at the gulls and fulmars floating below them on the air. They were on their way back from the beach one evening, when his mother stopped to watch the very last of the sun disappear into the sea. That's where your father's plane went down, Harry, she said. He's out there somewhere. Still, no one could have a better grave, could they? She put her arm round him and pulled him close. We mustn't ever forget him, Harry. Harry! The cry came in unison, a cry of dismay and anger. Harry never even saw the ball. He heard it crashing against the wire mesh above his head and felt the crumbs of rust fall on his neck as he ducked. Recriminations were sharp but mercifully brief because everyone knew there were only a few short minutes left until the end of break. He conjured up Bournemouth again, although he didn't really want to. Not any more. It was like a recurring dream that you have to finish, even though you know it ends badly. The day on the pier was the day it all went wrong for Harry. A fierce gale was whipping the beach into angry sand squalls, so that no one could stay there for long that morning. The cliffs were shrouded in cloud, so they ate their picnic in a bus shelter, and then, tucking the cloth back into the basket, they made for the pier. Harry said he wanted to walk all the way to the end, and so they did, hanging on to the rail and to each other to save themselves from being blown across to the other side. They laughed aloud in the wind and the spray, as the waves seethed below them and crashed against the pier. They had reached the end and were breathless with the wildness of it all, when the cloth from the picnic basket was whipped out by the wind and flew off down the pier, wrapping itself around the rails some fifty yards away. Harry went racing after it, but someone was there before him. A tall man, he was, with glasses. He had the cloth in his hands. Not sure you should be out here on your own, he said, as Harry took the cloth from him and his mother came running up. He's not on his own, said Harry's mother. He's with me. Even so, I think it's a bit risky, don't you? Here, let me help you. He took the basket. Come on, take an arm each and hang on. They did not need his help and Harry knew it. And what was worse, Harry knew his mother knew it. But she took his arm just the same. Harry had no choice. He followed her example and clung to the man's arm all the way back down the shuddering pier as the waves broke over it showering them with sea-spray, so cold that it took the breath from their bodies. In the shelter of a tea-room, the man took off his glasses, shook out his coat, and introduced himself. "'I'm Bill Wesley,' he said, holding out his hand to Harry's mother, and she was smiling at him as she took his hand. In the days that followed, Harry hardly saw his mother. It was Auntie Ivy who built sandcastles with him now and pushed him on the swing in the front garden. If I'd had a little boy, I'd have wanted him to be just like you, Pet, she told him. But Mr Coleman and me, we weren't blessed. Harry wasn't sure what she meant by that. It was Auntie Ivy and not his mother who read bedtime stories to him, kissed him goodnight and tucked him up, leaving the door open for the light. He heard her tell his mother one morning out in the passage, I'll look after the boy for you. It'll be a treat for me. I've always wanted one of my own, you know. You go and enjoy yourself with your young man. You're only young once. And so, every morning after breakfast, Bill Wesley would come, and his mother would say to Harry, You don't mind, do you, dear? Auntie Ivy will look after you. I'll be back before bedtime. But she never was. On the last day at breakfast, his mother said that Billy, she called him Billy now, wanted to take them both on a boat trip. He wants to get to know you a bit, she said. Harry told her he wasn't feeling very well. He was sure she wouldn't go if he wasn't well. But his ruse backfired on him. Auntie Ivy put her warm hand on his forehead and said she thought he might well have a fever coming on and that perhaps he ought not to go out, that she would be quite happy to look after him. So his mother went out with Bill Wesley on the boat without him. Harry watched them from his bed through Auntie Ivy's binoculars. He watched them out in their bobbing boat until his anger made him cry. Auntie Ivy said she understood. She cuddled him close and kissed him. "It'll be all right, pet. I'll take care of you. If you ever need a friend, your Auntie Ivy will always be here. Come on, cheer up. She's a pretty woman, your mother. Only natural she'd take up with someone one day." Nice young man he is too. Works in a bank, he tells me. A woman doesn't want to stay a widow all her life. Believe me, pet, she should get married again. Only natural. And that's just what happened only a few months later in St Cuthbert's. They had the reception in the church hall afterwards. Harry was there, lost in the legs of the wedding guests. Are you happy for me, Harry? His mother asked him. She was wearing the brown suit but the winged brooch wasn't there any more. Harry nodded. Doesn't look very happy to me, said Bill, bending down and ruffling his hair. I'll be looking after you both now, Harry. Give us a smile, Harry dear, his mother said through her tears. Harry smiled, but just to please her. She kissed him and whispered, It'll be all right. You'll see. But it was not all right. Nothing was ever to be all right after that. Harry! Harry started out of his dream too late, and the ball rolled past his outstretched foot and threw a hole in the fence behind him. They were all shouting at him, Peter Barker amongst them. What's the matter with you, Harry? he said, rushing up to him. You didn't even try. We just lost and it's all because of you. You'd better fetch the ball and quick. The bell's going any second. There was a system for getting the ball back if it went through or over the fence into the bomb site. Everyone knew it was absolutely forbidden to go in there. Mr Quigley, the headmaster, had told them often enough. The walls were dangerous, and there could even be unexploded bombs. Of course, no one really believed that. A dozen or more children gathered around the hole in the fence to form a protective screen so that no one could see what was happening from the school windows. But why me? asked Harry. You let the goal in, didn't you? said Peter Barker. There was no answer to that. Anyone about? Harry asked, looking for any lurking teachers on playground duty. All clear, said Peter, turning Harry towards the hole and pushing him downwards. Harry scrambled through and had just grabbed the ball when he heard the bell. He turned quickly and was crawling back when he felt his jumper catch on the fence. He looked up and called for someone to help free him. They had all gone. Every last one of them. And Miss Hardcastle was striding across the playground towards him, the bell in her hand. Harry felt his jersey tear and then his trousers as Miss Hardcastle took him by the shoulder and dragged him back through the hole. Miss Hardcastle was known to everyone as the Dragon, and with good reason. To get caught by any teacher in the bombsite was bad enough. It usually meant her dressing down in Mr Quigley's study, as well as several hundred lines and a letter to take home. But to get caught by the dragon was always a deal more painful. She dealt with things herself, and in her own special way. When the dragon hit you, she meant to hurt you. Harry knew that only too well as he was marched along the corridor and into the classroom. They were all sitting there in awed silence, guilty witnesses of what was about to happen. Not one of them dared to look him in the face except Peter shrugged his shoulders and apologised with his eyes. Harry dreaded the ritual, but he was determined not to show it. He held out his hand, praying fervently it would be the flat of the ruler across the open hand this time. How many times have I told you, Harry Hawkins, that the bombsite is out of bounds? Harry said nothing. It was better that way. Over with quicker. You didn't argue with the dragon, not if you knew what was good for you. "'You do know the bomb site is out of bounds, I suppose?' "'Yes, miss.' "'Then why did you go in there?' "'To fetch the ball, miss.' "'So you quite deliberately broke a school rule, didn't you?' "'Yes, miss.' The worst bit was the waiting. Harry's mouth was dry with fear and the backs of his legs were sweating. "'Deliberate, defiant disobedience!' The dragon was working herself into a temper with every word. She grabbed his fingers and turned his hand over, knuckles uppermost. He knew now he had to expect the worst. Perhaps this will persuade you to do as you're told in the future. And she reached for the long ruler from the top of her desk. And there'll be a letter to take back to your father. He's not my father, Harry said quietly. What did you say? He's not my father. My father's dead. Oh, yes, of course, I forgot. And her lips curled with acid sarcasm. We all know Harry Hawkins' father, don't we? The great war hero, the great fighter pilot. You've told us often enough, haven't you? He wasn't a fighter pilot, miss. He was a navigator in a bomber, and... Are you arguing with me? Her lips were tight with fury. Are you? No, miss. Harry knew he was stupid to have started it, but he would not let anyone call Bill his father, not even the dragon. He winced in spite of himself as she tightened her hold on his wrist and pulled his hand out. He saw her tongue gripped between her teeth and watched the ruler swinging upwards. He did not try to pull away. He'd done that before. She just added another stroke every time he tried. His fingers curled involuntarily as the ruler came down, sharp edge first. With the hollow crack came the pain shooting all through him. Maybe this! Again the ruler came down, again, and then again. Maybe this will teach you, and this, and this! Harry looked at her, his eyes hard with defiance. She dropped his wrist. And don't you dare look at me like that, Harry Hawkins, else there'll be more! But Harry had no choice. His mouth and his eyes were full of tears that he must not let out. To blink would have been to release them. So he glared up at her, his huge eyes pools of dark anger. Miss Hardcastle seemed suddenly troubled and looked away, muttering to Harry to go and sit down and that he must come to pick up his letter from the staff room before he went home. It was over.